Good morning, everyone. You guys ready? We are starting a brand new series today. I've got lots to cover, um, and I'm really excited for what God wants to do. So we're going to jump straight into it. So the series that we're in is called I Don't Get That. Everyone say, I don't get that. Have you ever said that before, especially to your parents? It's like, you need to clean your room. You need to make a bed. I don't get that. I'm going to sleep in it tonight. I don't get that. So why do we need to do that? Well, in Christianity, there's also stuff that we don't easily just get, right? You know, there's things about our faith that isn't maybe the simplest to understand. And um, so annually, we like to do a series. We've called it many different things. We called it, you asked for it. We said, I don't like that. And now this year, we're calling it, I don't get that, to try to get different questions that you have and to give us a chance to talk about things that we might not have spoken about that is important to you, is important in your journey of faith. And so over the next four weeks, we're covering four different topics based on the questions that you have asked. So if you're wondering why we're talking about such weird stuff, it's because you're thinking about weird stuff. Just saying. We think very normally. It's based on, like someone's asking about stars. So Pastor Beck in like three weeks' time will be talking about stars and how they relate to our life. Um, I'm interested to see what she comes up with. She's also interested. And um, next week, she's going to be talking about Old Testament laws and how they apply to us the week after that. So sandwich in between Pastor Beck's messages, I'll be talking about free will and predestination. So that's going to be fun. But this morning, I'm going to be talking about generational curses and spiritual warfare. Yeah. So let's get into it, hey? Let's just pray before we start. Dear Jesus, I thank you that you are here. We thank you that your presence is already here with us. We thank you that uh, your word says that where your spirit is, there is freedom. And so we thank you for the freedom that is available for us today. And I pray that you help us to stand in it. We pray this in your name. Amen. Awesome. What is spiritual warfare? What is this whole idea of the spirit? The spirit is something that can quite often spook us out. It can make us feel like things are a little bit weird. Hollywood loves this and makes it out like the spiritual realm is crazy where there's so many different things that could happen, that, that demons can make you levitate and change your voice, that you have all of these different aspects and it can seem a little bit spooky. And so what is it? How does it affect us? First, let's look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 13. And it says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand." The first thing that I want to point out is that there is a spiritual battle that we are all a part of. Whether we like it or not, we are part of this war that is taking place. And so Paul tells the church in Ephesians, in, in Ephesus, in Ephesians, in Ephesus, that we need to be ready for it. We need to pull on the full armor of God. He goes on to, to describe the full armor of God, helmet of salvation, belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith, sword of the spirit, uh, shoes, sandals fitted with the gospel of peace. I've done pretty well, haven't I? 
I've been to church a long time. And we used to get prizes for this stuff, but now I get paid to regurgitate information to you guys. Um, but we have this sense that there is a spiritual war. And the first thing that I want to put out uh, to all of us this morning is we need to be aware of it. We need to be aware that our lives are not just flesh and blood. What we can see, what we can touch, what we can observe in this physical world, it is, uh, it is necessary for us to understand that there is another dimension, if you will, that is at war, that, is, that there's something taking place that influences our lives, and we need to be aware of it. However, I think that many of us, when we think about this awareness, I've got a little picture that we can put it up, we think that it looks a little bit like this. When we fight this spiritual war, right, like I think some of us think that we need to sit with our legs crossed in an awkward position, which I'm not going to be able to do right now, and put out some hand signal and, and project our spirit into what is happening over there. Anyone get that picture when you think about spiritual warfare? Oh my gosh, seriously? <laughs> not, not like that? Like, come on, that's pretty cool, right? Who wants to be involved in that battle? This is not going the way I thought it would. <laughs> I honestly think that when we talk about spiritual warfare, many of us at some level think that it's something like that in a space that we cannot see and we do not know how to influence. Am I right? And because that is what it is, we kind of like, well, let's leave it for the Hollywood directors to kind of make their movies about Van Helsing and... Um, I don't know any other ones. Are there others? Ghostbusters. And you know, what's taking place there? Well, we are going to talk about that in a moment, but to draw on it, I'm first wanting to talk about generational curses. And from generational curses, what we're going to do is that I'm going to show you how generational curses and spiritual warfare, uh, how they interrelate and how this picture is not the picture that we should be having when we think about spiritual warfare. The word generational curses is not actually found in the Bible. Strange but true, because sometimes Christians talk about it as though it is the only truth. I mean, I've grown up in some circles where every single time there is a problem with someone, it's like, oh, that must be a generational curse. Let's cast and let's break the generational curse. But a generational curse isn't actually found in the Bible. It was taken by Christians and well-meaning Christians from certain passages in the Old Testament, which talks about how, uh, where, where God introduces or he, he talks about himself as a God who brings blessing to those who love him to a thousand generations, but to those that rebel against him, they will be punished to the third and the fourth generation. I've got one example out of, I think, four um, in, in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. And this is God speaking to Moses. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, thousand generations, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Who would like to say amen to that? I also find it a little bit strange that when I'm reading a passage like this, 
we don't really focus in on the compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. We read that passage and we go, God punishes the children and the children's children and the children's children's children for the parents' sin. And that's all we focus on. Number one, we need to realize in this passage as well as the other passages that have this whole third and fourth generation thing happening, that God wishes to bless. That's the number one thing that we need to realize. Why is it that those who love Him get blessed to the thousandth generation? What the punishment is only to the third and fourth. Three to four, thousand. What do you think God weighs more heavily upon? What do you think God wants to do more of? Anyone want to take a guess? Blessing. You guys need to respond today. Help me know that you are on track with me. God wishes to bless. God loves to bless. But there is this sticking point. Why is it that the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation are punished for the parents' sins? What is taking place here? Well, the Bible is extremely clear that God does not punish the next generation for the sins of the previous generation alone. So in Ezekiel 18 verses 1 to 4, this is what it says. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. I had to look that up because I thought, what the heck is your teeth being set on edge? Right, like, boom. Like, what is it? It basically means that your teeth are really sensitive to something that is extremely sour, and so they actually hurt, right? So when you eat something really sour and your teeth really tingle and hurt, that's mean, that, that, there's an old English proverb, your teeth are set on edge. So what this proverb that the people of Israel were saying is the parents are the ones that are doing the wrong thing, but the children are the ones that are suffering for it. And this proverb was used widely in Israel up to this point to demonstrate the consequences or or the circumstances that the Israelites were facing. They were saying, it's the parents' fault. It's not mine. I'm simply getting my teeth set on edge because of what my parents have done. They were releasing themselves from the responsibility because they used this proverb. They misinterpreted God's words about the punishment to the third and the fourth generation. And so God is correcting this wrong mindset. And he says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child, both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. Every person is responsible for their own sin. The Bible is clear on this. There are multiple verses that, 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 that have a similar sentiment that every person is responsible for their own choices, not the choices of the generation that came before. We do not have a generational curse that passes on to us regardless of what we do. So what is God talking about when he says that he blesses a thousand generations and then he curses three to four generations, or there's punishment for three to four generations? What is taking place there is more that God has set certain principles in place in this world and in the way that we live. 
One of those principles is that we are placed in families. We do not get born in a vacuum. We do not pop out, live in a little pod, and then one day emerge as an adult. We, the moment we are born, we are placed in a family. We are placed in the family that could be amazing. We are placed in a family that could be absolutely terrible. And what happens when we are in family is that we observe and we learn. And this is what research has shown us, that if your parents are alcoholics, the chances of you being an alcoholic rises substantially. The curse of generations or the blessing of generations is simply that we learn what is normal based on the family that we are in. That is as simple as it is. If your parents taught you how to be polite, you will gain the benefits of being polite. If your parents taught you how to do drugs, hopefully not, then you will suffer your own choice on taking drugs. And God is very clear, even though that was your norm, as destructive as it is, you still have your choice today how you are going to live. And so the whole point of breaking generational curses isn't so much someone projecting their spirit form into that picture that I was showing you to fight off this curse that God has placed on your life in order to experience His blessing. No, what breaking a generational curse looks like is this used to be my norm. This used to be normal for me. I grew up seeing this, experiencing this. But the moment I step into God's kingdom, I recognize that that, as much as it was normal, it is no longer going to be my norm. Make sense? So my parents, not my parents, I'm giving an example. My parents drank alcohol every day till they were stone drunk. And that is my norm. When I'm stressed out, I drink. When I'm anxious, I drink. When I want to relax, I drink. Basically, whenever there is a ticking time somewhere and I'm awake, I drink. That is my norm because that's what I observed and that is what has passed down to me is how life works.
We take a stand in what God is wanting to do in our lives. I speak to so many people and I talk to them about this new culture of this new kingdom that we are all partakers of or we can be partakers of. The entry cost into God's kingdom is easy. It's simply saying, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. That's the entry point. To fully access the fullness of what God has, we start to live according to His principles. And I talk to people about these principles and they say, that's not the way I was raised. Sure, it wasn't. Because your parents weren't Jesus. They weren't God. You weren't born in the heavenly realms and experienced the blessings of being in a face-to-face -face intimate relationship with God. You were born in the circumstances that you were born in. Sure, that was your norm, but what is your norm going to be from today onwards? That is what generational curses are all about. And that is a picture of what spiritual warfare is about. Spiritual warfare isn't about spiritual projections into the future, fighting off the evil spirits. It's not about charms and prayers that, that, that mean something. I, I, as I think I was growing up in a time where in Singapore the church was having maybe a bit of a new and uh, exciting revelation that there is a spiritual realm. And there were these preachers that would go around and they would teach people about spiritual warfare, deliverance and all of that. And, and I appreciate being exposed to some of it. But one of the things that I thought was happening is that there were magic words to say. There were things that you could say, and when you say it, it would make this amazing impact. And there was this particular guy, and um, he had a bit of an Asian accent because we were in Singapore. And he was basically saying to this evil spirit, I don't know why I'm telling you this story, it's just funny. But he was praying for someone, and, and he was like, there's an evil spirit influencing you, we need to cast it out, we need to do deliverance. And By the way, we're not really talking about deliverance today. Does he give you a picture? And, and he, was, he was saying what I thought was algae go. Because he was making, anyone know what, he, what that's supposed to be? Out you go. But I heard algae go. And I was like, why does he keep saying algae go? Uh, what does that even mean? He hasn't explained that in his, in his lecture. He's just shouting at this person, algae go. I was like, what does that mean? And I just had this picture in my mind, I still have that picture in my mind, that when it comes to spiritual warfare, that they're magic words. Algae go. You know, when you don't like something that's happening in your life, just start shouting algae go and maybe something. But it, that's the picture that I got. But as God was revealing things to me, I started to realize, much like generational curses, it isn't some weird, arbitrary, spiritual dimension that's being enforced upon our lives. It very much is us living in our lives and making certain choices. What do I mean? This morning I want to really dive into this through Joshua chapter 17. And why I'm going into the Old Testament for this is because the Old Testament is meant to be a shadow. This is what theologians say. A shadow of our lives in the New Testament. What happens to the Israelites is basically a real-life picture of what is going on internally for us in many ways, shapes, and forms. So when we talk about Egypt in the Old Testament and the slavery that uh, the Israelites lived um, in, in that time, it basically talks about the slavery to sin in our lives today. Make sense? Yeah. 
And so at this point in time, in this passage, the Israelites had left Egypt. They had been saved from their slavery by God's sovereign power and then made their way to the promised land. The promised land to us today represents the promises of God. To the Israelites, it represented a real live land. But for us, it represents the promises of God. Read the New Testament, it talks about this. And basically what we are seeing in Joshua 17 is that the Israelites had already gained a stronghold in the promised land. They had already subdued certain parts of this promised land and they were now being allocated different parts of this land as according to their tribes, right? So that's what's happening. In chapter 17, verse 14, we read about the people of Joseph. The people of Joseph are two different tribes. They are the Ephraimites and the Manassites. And the people of Joseph said to Joshua, Why have you given us only one allotment and one portion for an inheritance? We are a numerous people, and the Lord has blessed us abundantly. If you are so numerous, Joshua answered, and if the hill country of Ephraim is too small for you, go up into the forest and clear land for yourselves there in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaites. The people of Joseph replied, the hill country is not enough for us and all the Canaanites who live in the plain have chariots fitted with iron, both those in Beth Shan and its settlements and those in the valley, the valley of Jezreel. But Joshua said to the tribes of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are numerous and very powerful. You will have not only one allotment, but the forested hill country as well. Clear it and its father's limits will be yours. Though the Canaanites have chariots fitted with iron, and though they are strong, you can drive them out. So we have these two tribes. They come to Joshua. By the way, little Bible trivia for you. Joshua is the Hebrew version of Jesus. Jesus is the Greek version of Joshua. When we read about Joshua in this text, we are reading about one who literally is seen in the Old Testament as a bit of a Messiah to the people. He was the one who brought them into the full promise. And so if you want to talk about a picture, this is about people coming to Jesus in a, in a certain kind of a way. I hope I'm not making this too mystical, but I hope that you understand this whole idea that the Old Testament is a, is a very beautiful, very rich picture of our Christianity. And, and, and it's like we come to Jesus and said, I don't have enough. The people of Joseph came to Joshua and said, why have you only given me one allotment? We are not going to be able to thrive in this small allotment that you have given to us. How many of you ever walked through your life and you felt, God, is this all that you're giving to me? How many of us have ever been in a position where it's like, you want me to do all of that, but you've only given me this? How am I supposed to flourish? How am I supposed to live in abundance when there are restrictions? Right? And this is what Joshua said to the people. He said, you do not only have one allotment, I have given you enough in the form of that other piece of land. Why have you only spoken about one of the two pieces of land that I've given to you? Well, one of the pieces of land was easy because it was already cleared. There was no obstruction anymore to them settling in that piece of land because it was already cleared. 
But the second allotment was not yet cleared. And God was very specific when the Israelites were marching into the promised land. He said, the land will not completely open up to you in one go. God clearly said to the Israelites, I will progressively, step by step, open up the land to you so that you can grow into it, so that you can properly take possession of it. And while you haven't done it, those that are already living in the land will continue to tend the land for you so that it will continue to be productive. And so when the Israelites were now given their allotments and they realized there is still work to be done, some of them came back to Joshua and said, you are so unfair. How many of us think that the moment we say that sinner's prayer the moment we invite Jesus into our lives, all the problems in our world disappear. How many of you wish that that was the way it was? And no more relational issues, no more sickness, no more financial difficulties, no more troubles, no more difficult landlords, no more terrible bosses. I'm a Christian now. I should be blessed in the promises of God. He said that I will flourish. Why is it that there's still opposition? Because the Bible shows us a picture that there is blessing that is progressively possessed. There is blessing that must be progressively possessed as you continue to grow. The New Testament shows us time and time again when there is opposition, rejoice because the Lord is growing you. When there is suffering, rejoice because God sees that you are larger than you currently are. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the relationship we have with God? Well, it sounds beautiful, doesn't it? But in reality, it's hard yakka. In reality, the Raphaites and the Perizzites are still living in the land that God had given to me. I want to point out this whole idea, the Raphaites and the Perizzites, because they represent something really interesting the Rephaites were literally giants. They were from this descendancy of giants. They were a warlike people and they built cities. They built these massive strongholds that would be imposing and difficult to chase out. Whereas the Perizzites, their name literally means villages. They, they weren't congregated together in an imposing way. They were scattered across the land. And when the people of Joseph came to Joshua and said, the Rephaites and the Perizzites still exist in our land, I wonder if they were more mentioning the Rephaites, the ones who were big and strong and imposing. And they were looking at that and going, I don't think we are going to win against that. But do you know that post this passage and post Joshua, the Rephaites aren't mentioned again? the people of Israel actually managed to deal with the giants. But the Perizzites are mentioned time and time again in the book of Judges, one book after Joshua. Basically, when Joshua died, a whole bunch of different judges rose up to lead the land, uh, the, the people of Israel. And it's mentioned that the Perizzites still existed and the Perizzites were one of the people groups that led the people of Israel away from God. I put forward to you that spiritual warfare, yes, 
can be about the giants, but it is also about the little villages. I'm not trying to play this down, but I've met many people, amazing Christians, who have faced with cancer, respond in an amazing amount of faith. Rise up because they are fighting a giant. They stand tall, they stand firm, they stand as an example to all of us because they fought against the giants and they won. But the number of Christians that aren't dealing with the villages because they're too small, they're too widespread, it doesn't really affect me. I put forward to you that spiritual warfare isn't always about the glamorous giants. It is about clearing the land, all of the land. See, God put this on my heart. So I was reading this a couple of weeks ago. There's a difference between ownership and possession. And that's where spiritual warfare really takes place. God has given us great and many promises. That is what the Bible describes to us. In this very book contains promise after promise of what God has said is your inheritance. Did you know that peace is a promise from God? Did you know that joy is a promise from God? Did you know that victory is a promise from God? Did you know that freedom is a promise from God? Did you know that courage is a promise from God? Did you know that you can have all of those things plus, plus, plus so much more? If I were to have a series on the promises of God, I could speak on that till the cows come home. What does that even mean, cows coming home? I don't know, but a long time. We could talk about that forever because the promises of God are so great and so many, but yet why don't we live in them? Because there's a difference between ownership and possession. The promised land were given to the Israelites as their ownership. Before they even stepped foot into the promised land, God had already signed a title deed over saying, this is yours. In the same way, God has said, this peace is yours. This joy is yours. This fulfillment is yours. This empowerment is yours. But it's a different thing to know that a title deed is signing your name and to actually possess it. And what is taking place in spiritual warfare is that what has our name rightfully on the title deed, we don't yet have possession of it. That is what is taking place. When the Raphaites and the Perizzites continue to stay in the land that is rightfully ours, what do we do? We engage in spiritual warfare. That is all that it means. It means that I start to understand what God is talking about. And that's why it's important for us not to just focus on what is big and messy and scary like the Raphaites and to actually think about the Perizzites. Because the Perizzites are widespread, it doesn't mean that they are stealing away. That means they're not stealing away from your joy. It doesn't mean that they're not stealing away from your peace. In fact, it's the parasites that are far more dangerous in the long term. I was speaking to a friend, a friend who, who has done amazing things in, in the church world, and, and he's a great guy. I love him dearly. But uh, a little while ago, I had a conversation with him, and it really highlighted this point on the parasites. He told me that only at the start of last year did he kick his pornography habit. This was a guy who was already living out the call of God on his life. This wasn't a guy who was fighting to find the call of God. He was living it out. 
But yet there was a pornography issue in his life. And he said, Nate, I actually finally managed to kick it. And you know what? It has unlocked a new level of energy in my life. I did not know how much pornography was stealing from me until it was gone from my life. How many of us are facing parasites in our life thinking it's not that bad? There's just small things, but they are still stealing from you. There's some of you that that depression issue, you're allowing it to continue to exist in your life because it's a parasite, it ain't a Raphaite. It's not big and strong and scary. It's like, I will deal with you when I want to because I don't need to right now. But that thing is stealing from you. That anxiety issue, that insecurity that continues to plague you, every few years it rears its ugly head and you're like, ah, you're still there. Yes, it's still there because you haven't dealt with it. It's still taking from you. It's still stealing from you. It's still taking away your joy, away your peace, putting you in a place where you do not have the fullness, but you don't have nothing. You just don't have the fullness. And so many of us are not engaging in spiritual warfare because we don't think it's urgent enough. When God is saying, I have given you exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond, how many of us are living in that place? And how many of us are saying, I've got enough. It's good enough. Spiritual warfare isn't sexy. Spiritual warfare is about one, no one the promises of God. What do you own? Do you know what you own? No, no, seriously, Christian. Do you know what you own? Do you know what God has promised you? Do you know what you're supposed to stand on? In Ephesians chapter 6, it tells us that after everything you've done, stand. Where are you standing? Are you standing in a place where you know it's secure because God is the one that has promised it? Because the promises of God are great and many, but the promises of God are also yes and amen. And so are you standing on something that is secure? Are you standing on something that is shakeable, movable, changeable? Too many Christians are living their Christian faith, faith based on how they feel. I feel like God is for me today. I'm strong. Oh God, you have left me. I've got nothing. Too many Christians are basing their faith on their circumstances. Oh, I've got a great job. God loves me. Oh, I just got let go from my job. God hates me. Are you standing on the truth? Do you know what you own? And once you know what you own, then you know what you possess. The possessing is where the fight comes in. See, the enemy tells, the Bible tells us that the enemy has two main tactics. He's called the accuser and he's called the father of lies. The enemy fights against us by tearing our identity down and telling us lies. When we engage in spiritual warfare, we are simply fighting against the accusations and the lies of the enemy. Spiritual warfare is where we engage in tearing down the accusations and the lies of the enemy. How do you fight against accusations and lies? Truth. Simple. Why do you think the Bible says knowing the truth shall set you 
free. It's because when the enemy accuses me, but I know the truth, the accusation doesn't wash on me. When the enemy tells me a lie, but I know the truth, it's like, uh, so what? You know when kids tell you a lie that you know is clearly a lie? Do you react like, oh my gosh, what have you just said? It's like, that's not the truth. It's not the truth. I'm not scared of your stupid lie. It doesn't wash on me. But when it comes to the enemy, because we don't know what the truth is, he says, you don't deserve the blessing. And what do we go, I don't deserve the blessing. God's not going to look after you. God's not going to look after me. This situation is too big. I can't deal with it. Why? Because we're not engaging in spiritual warfare. I'm not saying that spiritual warfare is easy. They had to chase out giants and the villages. It would have taken time, effort, energy. It would have taken something in them to commit to the process of possessing the land. But when the enemy comes at you, are you standing in the truth or are you allowing him to simply wash over you? Ephesians 6 goes on to tell us that after we put on the full armor of God and we are ready to face the enemy, it tells us to stand. And in Ephesians 6, 14 to 18, it says, Stand firm then, skipped over a few verses there, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always, be, always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. How many of us are people of prayer? How many of us actually understand that prayer is the greatest weapon that we have in the battle of spiritual warfare. But I want you to look at something. It says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. I think some of us think that prayer is requests. How many of you, when you are coming to God, you say, hey, God, I really need you today. I need this, I need that. How many of us are in a place where we are allowing God to speak into our situation? See, spiritual warfare isn't just about telling God what we need and what we want. Spiritual warfare is about coming to God and allowing Him to speak as well. Which comes back to this. Why am I making this such an important thing? It's because I don't think many of you are facing giants. Let's be honest. How many of you are facing death right now? How many of you are facing a difficulty so great that you would consider it a true giant? I think most of us are facing maybe large villages. I'm not trying to downplay what you're going through. I'm trying to show the truth that this is way more powerful. Because if this can beat the giants, it can beat your villages. But some of you are not even accessing this. Some of you are not listening to God. Some of you are not in a place where God is speaking to you. So you don't know what you own and you don't know how to possess. That's the simple truth of it all. If we can get the band up this morning. I'm not trying to say that the spiritual war just happens in our mind. But neither am I going to allow you to think that the spiritual war takes place out there. Because the spiritual war doesn't take place out there. 
that as long as you are facing this way, the wall doesn't touch you. The spiritual war takes place here. It takes place within you. It takes place in that space where you know how to possess and are in a process of possessing more of what God has for you. But do you know that spiritual warfare isn't that big a deal when you realize the victory that God has already given to you? See, in Luke 10, 17 to 20, it tells us a, a little passage. Jesus had sent out 72 of his disciples to go and to preach and to bring healing and deliverance to many people. And they were so excited. They came back to Jesus and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. What did Jesus say? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Because the spiritual warfare that we're doing right now is only temporary. Because when this life is done, we go to a place where God is king forever. We go to a place where He's already victorious. And the greatest victory that we could ever claim is the victory that Jesus won over sin and death. And so when he said, I saw Satan fall like, he like lightning from heaven, he talked about the fact that Satan has no hold on you. He might be holding your ownership right now, but it ain't no big deal because you got life and life eternal. And when you are faced with the opposition, and when you are faced with those things that are trying to steal your joy, steal your peace, steal your courage, all you have to say is, I know that Jesus already bought all of my life. I'm not worried about what you say to me because I know who I am. I know whose I am. I know the authority that I have in Him. And yes, you might feel that anxiety. You might feel that depression. You might feel that worry. You might feel that sadness. You might feel that discouragement. You might feel that hurt. But it doesn't mean that that's what you deserve. It doesn't mean that that's all that there is because your salvation is in Christ alone. I really felt while we were in our worship time this morning, in our prayer meeting as well, that there's some people here, you're hearing all this stuff, but there's a little voice inside of you that keeps saying, you don't deserve it. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I'm at. That person said this over my life. That person spoke that over me and I see that as truth. I'm always going to be like that. That's the way it's always going to be for me. I want peace, but I don't deserve it. I really felt strongly in my spirit. And that's why it says as well in Ephesians 6, that spiritual warfare is not just for yourself, it's for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I was going through spiritual warfare for you. That's why I'm saying to you right now, yeah, you don't deserve it, but God's grace makes it accessible to you anyway. You don't deserve salvation. None of us do. But Christ has still paid the price for it and it's a gracious gift from our Father in heaven that said, I am going to make you as victorious as my son. 
That's all that there is. So right now, whatever you feel you don't deserve, whatever you feel you cannot touch because of what you've been through and what has been spoken over your lives, fight it. Come back to the truth. It is by grace that I have been saved through faith and not on my own works so that no man can boast. It is what God has given to me and that's why I stand today. I'm not any more righteous than any single one of you. I've got my own issues and my own problems. I don't stand here as someone who has already overcome. I stand here as one who is still overcoming, that there's still more for me to possess. But what I'm trying to do is to encourage you. Are you taking the journey of possessing what God has already given you to own? Spiritual warfare, simple. Every day, you take a stand. God, I know that you've given me peace and I'm gonna stand in your peace. The next day you wake up, God, I know that you have given me peace and I'm standing in that peace. Tomorrow you wake up and you wake up and you say to that anxiety and that unrest in your spirit, I know that God has given me peace and I'm taking hold of that peace. I know that there's that thing that I'm worried about, that situation that is still on my mind, but I know that His peace passes all understanding so that I can continue to stand in His Word in His truth, in His victory, His truth has set me free. Come on, there's someone here that needs to be able to stand. There's someone here that today you need to learn that you have been called to stand. God's already given you ownership. You just need to learn how to stand in it. That's spiritual warfare. Let's stand this morning. First and foremost, I want to give an opportunity for people to possess the greatest victory for yourself. And that is salvation in Christ Jesus. That your sin is no longer yours, that eternal life can now be yours because of what Jesus did. Romans 10 verse 9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Truth, stand in it. So I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. All of us are gonna pray this together. And if you want to invite Jesus into your life, just repeat this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I know that I have sinned. I know that I have fallen short, but I thank you that you've already paid the price for it all. I invite you into my life. Be my Lord and my Savior. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Lift Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.